Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today NATO officials do not talk about the Nord Stream pipeline attacks. So the Washington Post reported on Monday that some Western officials are not eager to find out who is behind the bombings of the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines that connect Russia to Germany. So an unnamed senior European diplomat told the Post that there is an understanding at gatherings of European and NATO policymakers. And that understanding is don't talk about Nord Stream. So I'm just going to quote a paragraph here from the Washington Post report. It says, quote, leaders see little benefit from digging too deeply and finding an uncomfortable answer, the diplomats said, echoing sentiments of several peers in other countries who said they would rather not have to deal with the possibility that Ukraine or other allies were involved, end quote. So in February, of course, investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch published a bombshell report that said the U.S. was behind the Nord Stream bombings. Hirsch's report alleges that U.S. Navy divers planted explosives on the pipelines in an operation ordered by President Biden and carried out with the cooperation of Norway. So this Washington Post report is all about these Nord Stream attacks, makes no mention of Hirsch's report, doesn't even entertain the idea that the U.S. is a suspect. Instead, the Post report says that the suspicion for the attacks has fallen on Ukraine and Poland. And the report does not mention Hirsch's findings, but it does cast doubt on a new narrative that has emerged that the perpetrators of the bombing planted explosives using a yacht, specifically a yacht known as the Andromeda that is a 50-foot sailboat. So investigators are now saying that this yacht could not have been the only vessel used to carry out the operation, and they think that it could have been used as a decoy to distract from the true perpetrators. And this idea that a yacht was used in the attack first surfaced in a report from the German newspaper Die Zeit in an article published on March 7th. So if you remember, Seymour Hersh recently published another report that cited anonymous sources who said the D. Zeit story and another article published in the New York Times on the same day were planted by the CIA. Hersh said that the CIA was ordered to develop a cover story in coordination with German intelligence following a March 3rd meeting in Washington between President Biden and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. An American intelligence source told Hirsch that the cover-up was concocted to discredit his Nord Stream reports. So you have all this information and all these things Seymour Hirsch is saying. They don't even make it into this Washington Post report. Um, So it looks like they're trying to make Ukraine or Poland now possibly uh, take the fall for this attack. Um, This seems to be more of just that information. They're muddying the waters about this attack. Um, It's just really something that you know, you have these European officials saying they don't even want to talk about the Nord Stream bombings. Let's just move on and forget about it. Even though when it first happened, NATO said, you know, it's an attack on alliance infrastructure because there are pipelines that broadcast to Germany. And of course, uh, you know, we talk about 
all this green energy that the US and the EU are trying to work toward. And they always talk about climate change and things like that. Yet this was the largest uh, methane gas leak ever, apparently. And they don't seem to really be that concerned about it. So I think that says a lot as well. All right. The next one here, Russia's Wagner Group raises the Russian flag over Bakhmut City Hall. So the head of Russia's Wagner Group, that is the Mercenary group said Sunday that his forces raised a Russian flag over the city hall in Bakhmut, but the battle is still raging as Ukrainian forces still control some western districts in the Donbass city. So this is Yegevny Pergozin. Again, he's the head of the mercenary outfit. He said, quote, from a legal point of view, Bakhmut has been taken. The enemy is concentrated in the western parts, end quote. So Ukrainian military officials said on Monday that the fight for the city continues. A military spokesman said, quote, the enemy continues its assault on the city of Bakhmut. However, our defenders courageously hold the city, end quote. So Denis Pushalin, who is the acting head of the Donetsk People's Republic, that's the breakaway republic there in the Donbass oblast of Donetsk, where Bakhmut is located, he said on Monday that there's no sign Ukrainian forces will withdraw from the city. He said, quote, the enemy has not received a corresponding order yet. Accordingly, no escape or planned withdrawal of the Ukrainian regime's troops from Bakhmut is observed, end quote. So Russian and Ukrainian forces, they've been battling for Bakhmut since August 2022 was when this battle really started. So a very long time. And if you look at the map here, uh, Russia does continue to make small gains and is slowly encircling the city, but the fight isn't over. Prigozhin has said it's been very difficult for his uh, Wagner forces on the ground there. And a lot of Ukrainians are dying. A lot of Russians are dying. A lot of people are dying in this battle. It sounds very uh, horrific. And Zelensky has vowed to keep defending the city, and he continues to send troops into what has become known as the meat grinder in Bakhmut. Uh, and Zelensky recently said that if he loses Bakhmut, he will be pressured by people in Ukraine as well as other people in other countries to compromise with Russia in negotiations to reach a peace deal. And that's really the first time I saw the, uh, him saying something like that, that something could lead to him having to compromise with Russia. Um all right, so the next one here, Russia blames Ukrainian intelligence for the bombing that killed a Russian journalist. So Russian authorities on Monday blamed Ukrainian intelligence for the cafe bombing that killed a Russian military blogger and war correspondent, Vladlin Tatarsky in St. Petersburg. So Russia's National Anti-Terrorism Committee claimed the attack was plotted by Ukrainian special services. And they're also claiming that members of a foundation started by Alexei Navalny, who was that jailed Russian opposition figure, he's saying people involved with him were also involved in this killing. And according to AP, Ukrainian officials have not responded directly to the accusation. Zelensky on Monday brushed off questions about the bombing, saying that he didn't think about what happens inside Russia. Zelensky said, quote, I don't think about what is happening in St. Petersburg or Moscow. Russia should think about this. I am thinking about our country, end quote. So Russian officials say that Tatarsky was killed by an explosion by an explosive that was placed inside a figurine that was handed to him by Daria Trebov, who is a 26-year-old Russian woman who has been detained on suspicion of being involved in the murder, 
According to Russian media, Trepov admitted that she handed Tatarsky the figurine, but said that she did not know it was an explosive, and she hasn't said who gave her the figure. At least um, we don't know publicly what she's saying yet. So Tatarsky's killing was the second high-profile assassination inside Russia since the invasion was launched last year. In August 2022, Daria Dugina, the daughter of Alexander Dugin, the Russian philosopher, was killed in a car bombing outside of Moscow. Uh, I think Dugin, her father, was likely the intended target. I think that's what they think. Um, and, you know, both people support uh, Tatarsky and Dugin support Russia's invasion and have been very critical, actually, of Putin for not going hard enough. That was kind of, I, I know Dugan, that that's what he thought. I'm not sure exactly about this Tatarsky guy, but I have read some things that said he was critical of the uh, Russian high command for how the war was going. Um, but so, you know, of course, Ukraine is a major suspect in this and the U.S. thinks that Ukraine was behind the killing of Dugina. So I'm sure we might see some leaks come out, you know, from U.S. officials, if they think that Ukraine was behind this one, we might. Uh, I think it seems like they might kind of want to wash their hands of these types of attacks and, and just put the blame on Ukraine. Uh, but we'll see how this develops. Uh, the next one here: Russia will beef up forces in its northwest as Finland joins NATO. Um, so this isn't really new news. It's just Russia reaffirming that once Finland joins NATO, they're going to beef up their presence in Western Russia near the border. And this was Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Alexander Grushko. He said this on Monday, and Finland's accession, ascension into NATO will more than double the alliance's territory on the Russian border. It's a big border there. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu announced last year that Moscow will deploy more forces near the Finnish border in response to Finland joining NATO. And Grushko said that further steps depend on whether or not other NATO countries send military assets to Finland. Grushko said, quote, we will strengthen our military potential in the western and northwestern direction. In the event that the forces and resources of other NATO members are deployed in Finland, we will take additional steps to reliably ensure Russia's military security, end quote. So Grushko, um, sorry, Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, he said on Monday that Finland will formally become the 31st member of the Western Military Alliance on Tuesday during a meeting of NATO foreign ministers. So this is going to happen just a couple days after Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin lost an election to the center-right National Coalition Party in Finland. So now they have been tasked with forming a government. Um, so she's going to be out of office soon. But according to AP, the National Coalition Party has, you know, they're strong supporters of joining NATO, and they've advocated for NATO membership for two decades. So nothing's really going to change on that front with them. Uh, all right, the next one here, the Philippines announces the location of new U.S. bases. So this was on Monday that the Philippines announced the locations of four military bases that the U.S. will now have access to under a deal signed between Washington and Manila in February. So three of the Philippine bases will be located in northern Philippine provinces, and this angers China because they can be used as staging crowns for a fight over Taiwan. The U.S. will be granted access to the Lao Lo Airport and the naval base Camilla Asias, I might not be pronouncing these names right, 
and they are both located in the northern uh, Cagayan province. And then in the neighboring Isabella province, the U.S. will gain access to another military base. Um, so if you're watching the video here, you see I have this map of Philippine provinces, and Cagayan is the one in the north here. And the bases are on the main island, not uh, up in these smaller islands that are technically part of the province. But still, this is about over 200 miles to the southern tip of Taiwan from here. And Isabella is right south of Cagayan. So, but again, it's pretty far north, so close to Taiwan. And then the other base is going to be in Palawan, which is this island province in the west on the South China Sea. And of course, the South China Sea is a major source of tensions between the U.S. and China. The U.S. backs the Philippines in its maritime dispute against China. And whenever there's any kind of little encounter between Chinese and Philippine vessels, the U.S. always says, if you attack a Chinese boat in the South China Sea, we're going to intervene and we'll go to war. Uh, the, the U.S. is willing to go to war if something like that happens. Um, so definitely going to raise tensions with China, of course. And the new locations are on top of five bases that the U.S. currently has access to, bringing the total number of bases the U.S. can rotate forces through in the Philippines to nine. The expansion in the Philippines is a significant step in the U.S. effort to build up military assets in the region to prepare for a future war with China. So the U.S. expansion is being done under the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Arrangement, the EDCA, and this is a deal that Washington and Manila signed in 2014 to give the U.S. greater access to the Philippines and allow it to build military facilities. So I believe there's going to be some construction involved in this. And this agreement built on the Visiting Forces Agreement, which provides the legal basis for the U.S. military presence in the Philippines. And this shows, so this is Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the new Philippine president. You know, this is his decision. And it shows how he really uh, departs from the policies of his predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte, who was ready to scrap the Visiting Forces Agreement and kick U.S. troops out of his country over U.S. sanctions on Philippine officials over the country's drug war and the extrajudicial killings involved in that. So yeah, Marcos Jr., you know, he did go to China recently, but then he got back and signed this deal with the U.S. So he's definitely more U.S. friendly than Duterte. All right, the next one here, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to host Taiwan's president on Wednesday. So McCarthy will host Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen in California on Wednesday. And of course, this meeting risks provoking a major military response from China uh, in the form of exercises around Taiwan. So the Tsai McCarthy meeting has been long anticipated, but was not officially confirmed until McCarthy released the details on Monday. His office said that McCarthy will host a bipartisan meeting with Tsai at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California. So China views high-level government contact between the U.S. and Taiwan as an affront to the One China policy. When then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited, uh, met with Tsai in Taipei in August 2022, Beijing launched its largest ever military exercises around Taiwan in response. So McCarthy originally planned to go to Taiwan, but Taiwanese officials convinced him to meet Tsai in California rather than make the trip to Taiwan over fears of a Chinese escalation. But Beijing has signaled that it might still respond to the meeting in in a big way, whether, or, you know, it's in the U.S. or not. 
Uh, the Biden administration has said that China should not overreact because there is a precedent for Taiwanese leaders stopping in the U.S. But by hosting Tsai, McCarthy will become the highest level U.S. official to ever meet with a Taiwanese president on U.S. soil. Tsai stopped in New York on the way to Belize and Guatemala and will meet McCarthy in California on her way back to Taiwan. So the South China Morning Post reported on Monday that China's People's Liberation Army sent three warships to the East China Sea to conduct live fire drills. Chinese analysts told the Post that because the PLA command responsible for the Taiwan Strait directed these drills, it was meant as a response to size travel through the U.S. They said that the exercises indicated China will take strong countermeasures when Tsai meets with McCarthy. And I put that in there because, you know, these are Chinese analysts that are pretty familiar with the Chinese government's way of thinking, and they're usually right. They usually predict things correctly uh, when it comes to what China is going to do in response to growing U.S.-Taiwanese ties. So the question is if they're going to the drills are going to be as big as the ones that they launched when Pelosi visited because they were pretty huge or if they're going to take new steps, you know, to increase the pressure on Taiwan even more. All right, the next one here, US and its allies discuss a possible interim deal with Iran. So the Biden administration has spoken with European allies and Israel about a potential interim deal with Iran that would give the Islamic Republic some sanctions release relief in exchange for a freeze of some aspects of its nuclear program. And this is according to a report from Axios that cited unnamed Israeli and Western diplomats. And it said that the idea would be to get Iran to stop enriching uranium at 60% in exchange for some sanctions relief. So the 60% enrichment is the highest level Iran has ever achieved, but it is still below the 90% needed for weapons grade. The Pentagon has acknowledged recently in its nuclear posture review that Iran is not trying to build a nuclear weapon. So Axios previously reported that Israel told the Biden administration that Iran enriching over 60% could trigger an Israeli attack. But, you know, important context here is that Israeli pressure and threats are why Iran is enriching at 60%. It's why we're in this situation in the first place. Uh, Tehran took the step to enrich some uranium at 60% in response to an Israeli covert attack on Iran's Natanz nuclear facility that took place in April 2021. And Israel launched that attack. They planted an explosive in the facility. That happened just as the U.S. and and Iran resumed these indirect negotiations on the the nuclear deal. Then Israel does that. Uh, The Biden administration didn't even criticize the, the, the attack, uh, you know, they couldn't even say, no, you shouldn't blow up uh, nuclear facilities. They, they couldn't even say that. So it just set negotiations off on a very bad foot. Um, and then before that, when Iran started 20% enrichment, uh, this is recently, they did it before the original Iran deal was signed in 2015. But more recently in 2020, in November 2020, Israel assassinated Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, who was an Iranian scientist. And in response to that, Iran's parliament passed a bill to enrich uranium at 20%. So sources told Axios that the Biden administration began discussing the possible freeze-for-freeze approach with Iran in January um, and briefed Britain, France, Germany, and Israel on the idea in February. So I I kind of worded that a little confusing 
uh, it says that, that they started discussing the possible approach with Iran, but they haven't actually held talks with the Iranians as far as I understand it. So that sounds like it was internal Biden administration conversations. And the report said that Iran was aware of the proposal and so far rejected it. But again, it's not clear if there's been any real negotiations or offers at this point. So in recent months, the Biden administration has rejected diplomacy with Iran and increased sanctions on the country. U.S. officials have repeatedly said that attempting to return to the Iran nuclear deal known as the JCPOA was not a priority. And President Biden declared that the agreement was dead back in November. And U.S. and Israeli officials have also stepped up their threats against Iran and tensions in the region are really soaring. Speaking of which, the next one here, more Israeli airstrikes in Syria. So two civilians killed in the latest Israeli airstrikes in Syria. Israel continued its relentless bombing campaign in Syria early Tuesday morning, launching airstrikes targeting the southern suburbs of Damascus and killing two civilians. This is according to Syria's state news agency. But the pro-opposition UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights also reported that two civilians were were killed in the Israeli bombardment. The observatory described the target that was hit as a glass laboratory. Not sure if that means a glass factory or something. But it said the strikes also targeted the Damascus International Airport and what they called Iranian positions. So the Syrian uh, report said that some of the missiles Israel fired were intercepted by air defenses, and this took place just after uh, midnight, again, early Tuesday morning in Syria. So the strikes come after Israel targeted the central province of Homs on Sunday, wounding at least five Syrian soldiers. And on Friday, Israeli airstrikes hit Damascus, killing two members of Iran's IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. So they've really been ramping up these airstrikes. So this is what, the fourth one in the past five or six days within a week for airstrikes. That's a lot. And they're killing civilians and Iranian, uh, you know, military advisors. So things are really heating up and who knows what this could potentially spiral into. And of course, this is happening as Netanyahu is facing this political crisis at home because of his judicial overhaul. He did pause it, but uh, the protests have continued against him. All right, the next one here, U.S. opens war games with Japan and South Korea. So this is from the uh, Libertarian Institute. This article is by Kyle Anzalone, and the U.S. has launched war games with Japan and South Korea, anti-submarine war games off the coast of Korea with Seoul and Tokyo. So the naval maneuvers have provoked Pyongyang to issue a warning that it could use nuclear weapons. The two-day military drills are being led by the aircraft carrier USS Nimitz. The carrier was already in the region for the U.S. and South Korea's Foal Eagle War Games, which were the largest live-fire military exercises the peninsula has seen in five years. North Korea said that the Foal Eagle drills, which ran from March 13th to the 23rd, pushed tensions so high that nuclear war was a realistic possibility. Pyongyang conducted weapons tests as American and South Korean troops carried out the massive war games. These current anti-submarine exercises began on the heels of the Fall Eagle, and North Korea has issued another sharp warning. They said, quote, the U.S. and its followers should never forget the fact that their rival state has possessed the nuclear attack capability in practice, as well as the characteristics of the people and army of the DPRK, which would 
do not make empty talk, end quote. So again, we're just stuck in this spiraling tensions on the Korean Peninsula, war games and missile tests and heated rhetoric. And it, there's just no sign that Biden or anybody in his administration is even thinking about backing down on this. They just want to give Yoon, the South Korean president, I think everything he wants. And this is uh, where we're at. All right, the last one here. This is from Consortium News. Uh, it's an interesting one. A row breaks out over Julian Assange in the Australian Senate. So Green Party Senator, this is in Australia, David Shoebridge, asked the foreign minister a direct question in Parliament last Thursday. Did the Australian prime minister raise the case of Julian Assange with the president of the United States last month when they met? And did he ask for the charges against Assange to be dropped? So Wang, the Australian foreign minister, did not answer the question. She said that Australia could not intervene in the legal process of another country and sarcastically asked Green Senator Peter Wish Wilson, who spoke out, whether he wanted the Australian military to intervene against a court. In the face of Wang's comments, Assange's father, John Shipton, and his wife, Stella Assange, have continuously argued that the case is political and needs a political and not legal resolution. So despite Wong's statement, the Australian government has, through diplomatic intervention, won the release of six Australian citizens from foreign jails from foreign jails since 2007. So again, they've in, they've they've intervened in the past as a precedent for it, and you know it shows. I think the attitude that they have over her son. She doesn't even think it's really worth uh anything um worth an answer or, or anything so um pretty bad situation over there in australia they're letting their one of their own uh out to dry um at least some people uh in you know australia senate do care about assange all right but that's it for the news for today go check out our viewpoints we have some great ones as always one from rick sterling why Zelensky will not take back crimea it's about uh, time that he visited Crimea in 2016, you know, following the coup and and uh, Russia absorbing the peninsula. One from Ted Galen Carpenter, Western news media downplays Ukraine war crimes. We have one from Ron Paul about the Restrict Act. He says the Restrict Act restricts more than TikTok. One from Doug Bandow over at the American Conservative. Why are we still in Syria? And one from Ben Freeman and Yamin Huck, big mouths for spending our mum on industry backers. That's over at Responsible Statecraft. But that is everything for today. Um, thank you for listening. You could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate. Like and subscribe to the show on YouTube and share it around and leave reviews and comments. That's all very helpful. Um, but I will be back tomorrow. Again, thanks for listening.